There is an amazing thing happening deep in your body as we speak. Red blood cells are ferrying oxygen to every single cell in your body through your capillaries. Without those red blood cells, we would rapidly die. Red blood cells <clears throat> are by far the most abundant cells in the blood. Now, a red blood cell has a strange shape. It's a biconcave disc that is round and flat, sort of like a two-sided shallow bowl. Uh, an RBC has no nucleus. Do you know that? The nucleus is extruded from the red blood cell as it matures. Red blood cells, it will not change its character. That's very important. They never can change. Your, uh, some other cells do morph, but they do not. Red blood cells can change shape. In fact, they do change shape to an amazing degree because they, they fit into the tiniest little spaces going through your capillaries, squeezing down in. But they never change their character at all. That's part of not having a nucleus. Finally, an RBC contains hemoglobin. Uh, that's a protein molecule that is specifically designed to hold oxygen and, and carry it to the cells that need it. In fact, the, the primary function of all the red blood cells in your body and mine is to transport oxygen from our lungs to every cell of the body. The hemoglobin-rich RBCs allow your blood, did you know this? They allow your blood to transport up to 100 times more oxygen than we could possibly dissolve just in the plasma of your blood alone. If we just had your blood plasma, we could not get anywhere close to enough oxygen to all of the cells of your body. The red blood cells do that. Isn't that fascinating? But, of course, you're silently asking in your Dr. House imitation, what does that matter to us in church? Right, Dr. House. Great question, Dr. House. Thank you for asking. It matters because there are remarkable parallels to our souls. As a red blood cell is to the body, so Scripture is to the soul. The Spirit of God, which breathes life into our souls, literally inspires us, it's carried on the red blood cells of Scripture. The primary function of Scripture, think about it, it is to transport God's Word into our hearts. Without Scripture richly dwelling in Him, what happens to a Christian? He becomes anemic, sickly, useless. That's why Colossians chapter 3 commands us to let Scripture dwell richly in us. Open your Bible, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is in your New Testament, near the end of your New Testament, right after Philippians. Go to Colossians 3, let's read verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is our theme verse for this year. Uh, inside your bulletin, by the way, you'll find a bookmark that is to remind us of our theme verse throughout the year. It says, no stone unturned, which is our vision statement for the year. It's got the, the verse Colossians 3.16 on there. And that verse begins with the word of Christ. Stop right there. The word of Christ. You know, you know what that means? That means God speaks. This is absolutely astonishing. Folks, throughout most of human history, in most places, people have trusted in pagan gods. Pagan, pagan gods don't speak. Or, or if they do, they speak through vague transmission, through signs or auguries. The most famous of all the... Um, Divine communications in the world came from the Pythia, the uh, oracle of Apollo at Delphi. Uh, the Delphic oracle never spoke clearly or directly, rather spoke through vague prophecies that had to be guessed at. So before Colossians 3.16, the pagan peoples of the world were accustomed to divine communication that changed. It, it, could, it could mean anything. But here is Messiah God speaking intelligibly and clearly. 
I, I, I want us to understand what an absolute shock that would have been to the world that first received this letter. So I need, I need, a, uh, I need a volunteer. Scott, thank you. That's great. Come on up. Very nice of you to volunteer. Um, we're going to do a little reader's theater for you. Here you go, Scott. This is your script. Um, you get to stand back up there because actually you're just a voice. Um, where it says idol, that's your, uh, that's your spot to speak, okay? Uh, well, let me get my sacrifice. Hang on. Okay. Takes bananas. Okay. Uh, Wayne bows down before idol. Uh, here we go. Thank you, O God, for your gifts. Take this token in gratitude. I don't really like bananas. What? You, you, you speak? Yes, and I would really prefer you love your neighbor instead of bringing me bananas. You're talking! Yes, we've established that. You're speaking human language. I mean, understandable words, nothing hidden, nothing mysterious. I mean, these are real words. Good of you to notice. Now, about your neighbor... I don't like this. I don't like this at all. I beg your pardon? You don't like what? But a God who speaks is clearly frightening. I mean, I can't make your guidance into whatever I desire it to be. If you speak words, I have to live by them. Yeah, that's the idea. No way. I'm taking my business elsewhere. That's it. I'm done with that. Give my partner a hand. That was great. Well done. Brilliant. You can keep that for your long-term family photo album. The, um, now, that's just, a, that's just a silly illustration, but um, it gives us the idea of how shocking it would be that God speaks in a pagan culture. Now, you know the reality. In reality, no idol can or does speak. Isaiah, by the way, probably more than anyone captures this with brilliant sarcasm. Look at this. Isaiah chapters 44 and 45 are all about the, the foolishness of idolatry. Chapter 44, verse 19. No one comes to his senses. No one has the perception or insight to say, I bow down to a block of wood. It's awesome. Chapter 45, for this is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens. I have not spoken in secret somewhere in a land of darkness. The real triune God does speak. He spoke clearly to those who compiled his open and available Bible, which, by the way, Scott, you'll be glad to know, does command us to love our neighbors and not bring bananas. But God still speaks through that Bible today. That's why God gave us this reminder. Read it with me. You get the underlined text uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. Memorize that. Write that on your heart. It's true. In fact, just do it with me right now. Let's say the reference. All together, say the reference. 2 Timothy 3.16. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16. Together, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek is theonoustos, the very, the very breath of God. This is His living Word. All together, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Whole thing together, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Amen. Have you ever heard of the band Skillet? They're one of the best-selling rock bands of the 21st century. I, uh, I enjoyed sharing a meal with them a number of years ago, and I really enjoyed them. In fact, I was very impressed with their wisdom. Uh, John Cooper of Skillet recently wrote a little uh, piece 
uh, wrote a little comment on 2 Timothy 3. Look, look what he said about the passage we just read, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. John Cooper says, why is all of this important? Because there's a movement happening in Christianity that I call, I'm into Jesus but not into the Bible. This is bizarre because Jesus is the word of God, literally. The movement I speak of doesn't worship Jesus. Instead, they worship a God that is their own creation, a God that lets everything be about me and what I need and gives me everything I want because I'm so important, a God that is always for me, even if I forever reject him and die in rebellion against him. If this is our definition of Jesus, then we are, in fact, not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible, but rather an idol of our own creation. He goes on. So where do we go from here? My advice to all Christians is to go to church and experience the family of God. Secondly, let's begin to have an appetite for truth over our appetite for entertainment. Listening to, the Bible, listening to Bible teaching is not as fun as watching influencer YouTube vids. So, he says, stop making decisions based on what is temporarily fun and start making them based on what is ultimately soul-satisfying. Close quote. God speaks. And, and he literally speaks logos. The, the thought here now is really important and, and very intricate. Paul is not declaring, listen, he's not declaring that Jesus continues to speak words to us. This is not a future word of Christ that should dwell in you all. It is the logos that comes through Messiah Jesus. Let me, let me explain. You notice how Mr. Cooper said Jesus is the word of God, literally. Cooper's referencing a significant aspect of New Testament philosophy. It, it's expounded in a lot of places particularly beautifully in a lot of places, like the poetry that begins the Gospel of John. Re read it with me. John's Gospel starts this way. Let's read it together. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on to make it clear in that passage that, that he's talking about Jesus, who is the Christ. And he employs this term, logos. Logos, logos is a term for something that, is, um, that has intrinsic meaning. It is self-revelatory. It is unchanging in its meaning. One of, one of my scholar friends puts it this way. I really like this. He says, logos means that words mean things. That's really good. Therefore, the word of Christ in our passage, 2 Timothy 3.16, it's the unchanging, self-revelatory scripture which is captured by and flows from the very person of Jesus. This is why the Bible will describe scripture as the word of God and Jesus as the word of God. So Mr. Cooper is absolutely correct. You cannot say you're into Jesus if you're not into the Bible. Maybe, maybe a better way to put it would be to say, you can't say you're into Jesus if the Bible isn't into you. That's why logos is the term used in our Colossians 3.16 theme verse. And it must be the logos. It must be the unchanging, self-revelatory scripture flowing from and captured in the person of Jesus. Anything else is a badly functioning imitation. The, Think about it like this. The horrible deformity um, in, your, in blood called sickle cell anemia. You've heard, you've heard of it. It's really an awful, awful thing. It, it makes red blood cells unable to flow properly. They, they clog up in, in even fairly decent-sized arteries. And, and they can't, because they're misshapen, because they're twisted, they can't carry enough hemoglobin. Without treatment, what dwells in sickle cell blood is a badly functioning imitation in the same way. If we warp scripture, we no longer have logos, we have heresy. If we deform the person of Jesus, we no longer have logos, we're left with a badly functioning imitation. Let the real logos, the word of Christ, dwell richly. Now examine the verbal here, let dwell. The root word is oikos. 
Oikos is a Greek word for a house. Um, the specific term here is enukeo. It means to dwell in. It's really simple. It's just in, the Greek prefix in plus oikos, house. But get this. This is really cool. Anytime you do this kind of construction with oikos in Greek, it never means anything physical. It always and only means something spiritual. It, do, it doesn't mean house. It, it doesn't even mean yogurt. Um, oikos used like this means indwelling in a spiritual sense. As we say atop the right side of your nose, indwelling is a spiritual idea. One of the big ideas in the Bible is the indwelling of God. God speaking fried the pagan brain, okay? This wowed them even more. God chooses to live with humans? Look, here's a few texts that describe indwelling, just a few. Second uh, Corinthians 6, for we are the sanctuary of the living God. Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, the Holy Spirit who lives in us, he says to Christians. And it's just absolutely incredible. Now, get this. This indwelling of God's spirit is purposely revealed to be just like the indwelling word of Christ. Spirit and word are each part of you that simply cannot be separated from the Christian. Richard Mellick speaks to this really well. He wrote a book on Colossians. Look what, look what he says. Dr. Mellick says, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, and Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, which we don't have time, but you can read on your own sometime. They speak to the same general concern. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Whereas Ephesians has, be filled with, that means yield to, the spirit. Both of these result in the, in the same or similar activities which follow in both texts. The texts are just amazingly similar. He, he closes with this. These are two sides of a coin, so to speak. Close quote. So if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, right? God is alive in the Christian, inseparable from us. Well, that is exactly how the word is to be. It is to indwell in our souls just like God the Spirit. And let me tell you, both spirit and word are essential because they aren't alone in indwelling the Christian. Da, 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 da. Paul uses the same root, oikos, to describe another indwelling, the indwelling of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 17. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin, what everybody? Living in me. Sin lives in me. Sin indwells, ikeosa, the, the human, indwells human even after he or she becomes a Christian. Romans 7 shows us that until Jesus returns, the indwelling spirit and the indwelling scripture do not completely unhouse sin from the Christian soul. Let's be sure we understand this on a personal level. Let's do this. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have personal knowledge that sin indwells you still, raise your hand, please. You're a Christian, and you know there's sin in you still. Keep them up really high. Let me see them. Okay, I'm a little concerned about one guy in the back. Uh, hands down. I know you. You say you're a believer in Christ, and you didn't raise We need to talk. Okay, you just come see me after. All right. You get the idea. This explains why it is so very important to yield to the Holy Spirit and to let the word of Christ richly dwell among you because dealing with sin has very strong similarities to our cellular processes. You know, you know our cells produce, you, you know this, right? Every cell in your body produces carbon dioxide uh, every day. The, the, in, the indwelling word of God is like your red blood cells. They, they, they don't just deliver the inspiration of oxygen. They also take the CO2 away. Do you know... 
Do you know what happens in your body if a cell is unable to rid itself of the CO2 waste? Jen, what happens to a cell that can't get rid of its CO2? That cell does what? It dies. It dies. Here's an explanation. This one comes from one of my old biology textbooks. Um, I used to read this, and I always pictured Dr. Solomon as this very strong and mean-sounding person, so that's how he's going to sound to you. Um, besides carrying oxygen to the cells of the body, the RBCs help to remove carbon dioxide from the body. CO2 is formed in the cells as a byproduct of many chemical reactions. It enters the blood in the capillaries and is brought back to the lungs and released there and then exhaled as we breathe. Okay? This is why the late great Christian leader Bill Bright compared daily Bible readings to breathing. It's a really good picture, isn't it? If, if we don't get the word deeply indwelling us, we become ill. And it's a choice. Look, look, look at the English. That's why let is added to my English translation. Uh, inukeo is rightly rendered let dwell because this includes action. It's not, it's, not, it's not something passive. Just think of the root image in the Greek. You don't passively just end up in a house. You have to, okay, unless you're an infant, all right? Yeah, I mean, okay, if you're an infant, and, and by the way, as Tom pointed out the other day, it must be terrifying to be an infant. You go to sleep in Target and you wake up in your parents' bed. I mean, it's just, anyway, um, but you, unless you're an infant, you have to actively go into a house. You, you go in. It is something you do. So, so inoikeo is the action of choosing to put down roots, make a home. Let me put it this way. It means we actively make ourselves the home of God's word. Amen. And notice that God adds richly, richly dwell. Again, red blood cells provide a really excellent parallel. If you're low on RBCs, your blood is not rich. It's called poor. D Dr. Solomon explains, in men, there, in men, there are an average of 5,200,000 RBCs per cubic milliliter. That's a microliter. And in women, there are an average of 4,600,000 RBCs per cubic millimeter. The ratio of cells in normal blood is 600 RBCs per each white blood cell and 40 platelets, any lower. And one is what, everybody? Anemic. But conversely, if your red blood cell count is full, then your, your, your blood capacity is amazing. Did you know this? Every red blood cell in your body can carry eight oxygen atoms at a time. Eight at a time. Okay, so, so do the math. Look, look at this. Um, average healthy female has about five million microliters of blood. She has at least 4,600,000 red blood cells per microliter, right? That's 23 trillion red blood cells. Her blood can thus deliver 184 trillion oxygen atoms every single minute that is richly dwelling indeed this amazing creation your body it can transfer oxygen it can eliminate carbon dioxide waste because it is packed with red blood cells and only because it's packed with red blood cells without a full complement of red blood cells your blood's anemic and your body becomes ill similarly if scripture is merely something in which we dabble we will be spiritually anemic this is one of the things my father warned me about when I started seminary. Started seminary, I remember one conversation I had with my dad at dinner and he said, uh, he said this to me. He said, boy, be careful. I've seen a lot of those seminary boys think they learn it all. They never really read the Bible again after they finish school. Close quote. He is right. And, and this audience needs to hear my dad. 
This is, and, and it's wonderful, this is a biblically well-educated audience, and that means you need to beware. Scripture is not meant to be a bolus that just infuses us once. It is to dwell richly in us, ever circulating in our hearts. Amen? Had a lady come up after one of the services earlier, and she said, RBCs, read the Bible continuously. Very nice. Last part of our text for today says, among you. Among you. Now, there is, there's great variety in the English translations. The Greek term can mean a number of things. It can mean in. Uh, but I think, I think the Christian Standard Bible rightly recognizes there's a communal nature of this verse in its context. This is talking about valuing Scripture as a whole together. It, it is not to dwell just in the person. It is to dwell in the person. By the way, lots of other passages make that clear in the Bible. Scripture is to dwell in the person, but God's word is also to dwell among all the persons who collectively make up the body of Christ. That's why our annual vision is based on community action. No stone is unturned because the Spirit and Scripture tumble us together and smooth us out bumping into each other for God's service. When I introduced uh, this annual vision of no stone unturned, we covered significant problems that, that we face in the world today. Covered three big problems that Colossians 3.16 addresses. I got a lot of mail, wonderfully. I got more mail about the first one that we talked about than anything else. The first of those problems we talked about was hyper-individualization. That means where I will define myself myself, thank you. Uh, today it's especially seen in regards to identity. When the word of Christ doesn't dwell richly among us, even Christians, I'm telling you, even Christians are prone to fall for the identity nonsense that plagues our era. For example, just this last week, the most popular newspaper in America posted a cover story, major cover story titled, Will Your Uploaded Mind Still Be You? The author's uh, Michael Graziano, he teaches at Princeton, and he is convinced, he is convinced, that mind uploading into a computer will someday be a reality. In fact, he declares this. He says, and I quote, personhood is more like a data file. The entirety of the human mind is contained in the 86 billion integrated neurons that make up a brain, close quote. That is astonishingly stupid. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. In the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, this teacher actually believes that human identity is something that is merely mechanical. By the way, you won't be surprised knowing that he has this mechanical only view of humanity. He goes on to say, your only hope for eternal life is to have your mind uploaded. And by the way, he probably will have a company someday you could pay to do that. Now, I read that story and I read some of his other writing and I was quite frankly just appalled. I was appalled at the bad science. I was appalled at the foolish idea, but my horror deepened when as I'm looking at the comments on this site I was on, and a number of the comments were from people I know around the country who are Christians. They are believers in Christ, and they commented how much they liked that article. I began to dialogue with some of those, and I, and I learned that some people, including some Christians, actually believe that the human identity is merely a biologic mechanical thing. It's ridiculous. And, and, and just as ridiculous as that objective mechanical view of humanity, of human identity, is the idea that identity is so individualized that it can just change. It can be changeable. Uh, today, this is especially seen in what is called gender fluidity. Uh, let me describe it to you. We'll use um, a young man that we'll call Brian as a tragic example. 
Brian, he'd, he'd faced a series of, of difficult setbacks in his life, and he was so full of despair over those, and they were serious, that he just retreated into himself, and I mean really retreated. Parents couldn't get through to him. Friends couldn't get through to him. He'd spent a lot of time in the dark alone. He spent a lot of time with pornography alone. Finally, Brian kind of stepped out of the dark, and he emerged to tell everybody he'd figured it out. He knew what was wrong. He was actually a girl trapped in a boy's body. He emerged from his darkness to tell us that I am a girl trapped in a boy's body. Brian managed to convince the nurse at his school to back his desire for life-altering hormones. Um, at this date, his family doctor and his mother are fighting to try and keep him, who is underage, from having a, uh, a permanent sex change series of operations. It's very sad. Remember how red blood cells don't change? They don't ever morph into something else. They can't. There's no nucleus. But they can stretch, right? They can fit anywhere. And they have to fit anywhere to bring oxygen to your, to your cells. But they can only bring oxygen of life to you because they don't change. That's what Scripture's like. Scripture can fit anywhere. The Bible applies to any and every culture and situation. There is no human situation to which God's Word can't apply. But applying, it doesn't change. The poor souls who desire identity fluidity, they reject the Bible. They have to. They reject it especially because Scripture refuses to morph with the times. But they don't realize the word of Christ can only give life precisely because it doesn't change. Folks, to cut yourself off from Scripture is like cutting your brain off from your red blood cells. It's, it's a formula for death. And thank goodness none of us ever do that. We, we never define ourselves apart from Scripture at all. We never define ourselves. We never think just materialistically or physically about ourselves. <laughs> thank goodness we're not like that. A former student of mine sent me a picture. It was a beautiful picture of her holding her baby. But she wrote this note with it. She said, Wayne, I wanted to crop this picture because I looked at it and I was bothered by that mom bod. I know it's ridiculous, but I still felt it strongly, she said, close quote. And I wrote back to her and said, I, I totally, I, I, I really relate. I understand. And then I gave her an example. I told her about the time, I think I was 28, when I got up one morning and I went in to wash my face and I looked in the mirror, and, and I absolutely screamed. Because for 28 years, I had had blonde hair that was so blonde it was almost white. And overnight, literally overnight, I woke up and looked, and there is hair on my head that is the color my mom always called dishwater brown, right? Sounds lovely that way. And I remember thinking, I started praying and thinking, this is stupid, Lord. It is absurd to find any part of your identity in hair color or hair at all. This is ridiculous. But I can't tell you how hard it was to believe that when I'm looking at that stinking brown hair. Another former student of mine, she's become a very popular writer. Uh, she recently shared this with her huge blog audience. Uh, Hunter Bielis, uh wrote this. When you take even a good thing and make it more fundamental to your significance and security than God, you have made it an object of worship. That's the struggle I face regarding physical appearance and body image. More than I'd like to admit, the way I look and think about myself creeps onto the throne of my heart. Ugh, she says, close quote. Now, if Hunter, who is an incredibly godly lady, if she can struggle with identity issues, I feel confident that we all do. 
course, that brings up the question we're all asking in our, in our Dr. Shepherd imitation, um, the Patrick Dempsey, what can we do? By the way, that's, I, I can't see his face without hearing my favorite line of all time from him. It's not from any show. It's from the movie Enchanted. How do they all know this song? I <laughs> love that. Um, the, <clears throat> anyway, what can we do? How can we apply Scripture deeply among us, overcoming the pressures to find our identity in materialism or some other idolatry? In our notes, there are three applications that are listed. I have found these three things really help me. I hope they will help you. First thing, we need to learn from earlier Christians. Our ancestors are not stupid. They understood the situation, that Scripture is the only authoritative voice. Do you know that's why the anchor was their most popular symbol? By far, the most popular symbol in the first two centuries of Christianity, in in churches, in Christian tombs, it is the anchor, because they knew that God and His Word were the only true anchor for their souls, and they needed that anchor because our forebears understood what we seem to have forgotten, that when we trust God, we will run inevitably into conflict. Pastor Tim Keller wrote a great article about learning from the early Christians. He had this brilliant insight on how our situation is so similar to theirs. Look what Tim Keller says. The earliest church was seen as too exclusive and a threat to the social order because it would not honor all deities. Today, Christians are again being seen as exclusive and a threat to the social order because we will not honor all identities. Close quote. He's correct. Because, as we've seen, any identity not based on the word of Christ is a false deity. It's an idol. To prosper in such an idolatrous environment, we must let Scripture dwell richly among us. It is our only anchor in a wild sea of nonsense. And our forebears knew that, and they could remind us of that. Here's a more recent example. Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, American pastor, he came of age in the early 20th century. You know what he did? He boldly held forth the idea that Scripture alone has the philosophic rigor necessary to handle the identity of humanity. He was a brilliant philosopher, and he argued this very successfully. In in fact, he made it clear that this is true, that only Scripture has the philosophic rigor necessary to handle human identity. He he made it clear it's true whether you live in a pre-modern culture that worships rocks or a post-modern one that worships the state. In his book, Killer Computers, Larry Terlizzese unpacks the impact of Niebuhr really well. Uh, Look what Dr. Terlizzese says. He says, Niebuhr presented the biblical view as the only acceptable alternative because it was capable of maintaining true individuality, a feat that modernism was unable to accomplish. The Christian view emphasized that man is created in the image of God and therefore possesses inherent dignity. Yet, as creatures, we are innately weak, finite, and needy. Holding these two positions in tension, Christianity is able to maintain true individuality. He goes on. Existing above nature, we are more than animal. Possessing a spiritual dimension, we have infinite value. Thus, Niebuhr demonstrated the failure of all other views of human nature. Each non-biblical philosophy attempts to stress some form of individuality, but invariably loses the individual in the collective state, or the universal mind, or the technological singularity. Close quote. Earlier Christians have insight that we need to help the word richly dwell among us. Quit being scared of theology. Quit being scared of history. You don't have to read a ton of it, but read. Look for it. Think about it. They have things we need to relearn. Application number two, we need to engage in group Bible studies. Last week, after I introduced the uh, No Stones Unturned vision, I received this letter, hilarious, insightful letter. 
a lady wrote me and said, Wayne, I think my lapidary machine, that's a tool for polishing rocks, I think my lapidary machine is broken. Instead of getting smoother as I've gotten older, my stone's rough edges are getting sharper and more jagged. I'm not sure I have the time or energy to work them off. Thankfully, she said, I have our life group and our family to pound me. Close quote. As she wisely points out, other people are critical to the process of our refinement. That's why, that's why one of the important applications of Colossians 3.16 is to engage in group Bible studies. At this church, we are blessed with so many opportunities. We've got life groups and youth groups and children's groups that are all built around Scripture. We have got these incredible leaders who facilitate Bible studies for men and women and children. L listen, if you're not involved in any of the group opportunities for group Bible study, please, please, this week, contact one of these wonderful leaders. Pastor Jeremy McKeska or Jennifer Bryant. They, they will help engage you. And by the way, I, I do need to add one note for the many who study with us around the world. Um, we love you and we are so blessed by you and when we can help you. However, listen, at this point, we cannot effectively conduct group Bible studies with you long distance. So wherever you are, you find a church and you study the, Bibles with other pe study the Bible with other people there. And if there's nobody to lead it, you do it, all right? By the way, there's one suggestion I'd like to make for all life groups and all Bible study leaders, and that's whether you are elsewhere in the world or right here, memorize Scripture together. I have found that, that Scripture memorized in a group does a great deal toward letting the Word of God dwell richly among us. Read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible, and memorize it, amen? Third application we need is to dwell individually in the Word of God. I mean, we must, we must each continually look for ever new ways to let Scripture dwell among us and in each of us. There are many ways to do this. And by the way, they always change to fit the capillaries of the time. Let, look at where we are today. You and I can study the Bible in so many ways. We can, we can get up and read the Bible every day or every night um, using just our normal translation. We can use one of those new verseless Bibles. Have you seen those? You really get the flow for the reading because it doesn't have any chapters or anything, which were added later. Um, you can do what my sweetheart likes to do. You can do a chronological Bible. You, you can study the Word by going to FriscoBible.com where we've got that incredible curriculum that our team puts together, and you can, you can download, they, they go with each series that they do, and you can just every day just do one page of the curriculum. It'll take you about 10 minutes. You read the passage, you go through it, good questions, you apply it. You can download a mobile app like the, the Christian Standard Bible mobile app that I have. It gives you a daily verse to meditate on. And, of course, there are always really good devotionals from Christian publishers. There are so many great things available to us. But, as we mentioned earlier, that doesn't make it easy to choose to study Scripture. Doesn't make it easy to let it dwell. I was talking this through with a very mature, very godly friend of mine, and he shared this observation. He wrote me and said, Wayne, the red blood cell analogy is great. If we don't eat right, our bodies get anemic. So if we don't feast on the word, it's no wonder our inner being gets anemic. Yet why, he says, believing all this, do I find it so hard to devote myself consistently to it? Close quote. Now, get this. While he was writing me that, when that arrived in my inbox, I was reading a Marvin Olasky column. And, and Marvin was commenting on the exact same thing, which fascinated me. He was quoting Kierkegaard. 
And so I was reading Kierkegaard. Now, Soren Kierkegaard is not always right, but occasionally he really nails it. And look what Kierkegaard, the great Dane, says about this. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly, close quote. So true, so true. But lest we lose heart, knowing that we're swindlers, knowing this can be hard, Please just remember what the word of Christ does. Keep the end in mind. It reminds us of the truth of who we are. It changes us from the inside out. My, my friend Hunter continued her post. Hunter Belis uh, says this, more than I like to admit, the way I look and think about myself creeps onto the throne of my heart. Ugh, but, she says, there is one who kindly prompts my heart to conviction by drawing my gaze upward, gently reminding me how much he loves me. So much so that he sent his son Jesus to die and put an end to my fleeting pursuit of self-justification and approval seeking. And get this, he doesn't just put up with me, he actually delights in me. Say what? But here's the thing, I can't see myself as delightful until I abandon all attempts to find my value and worth in anything other than Jesus. The biblical truth about who we are in Christ is the only thing that will stand up against our moments, any of our moments of insecurity. She finishes with this, positive self-talk, carefully structured plans, even tried and true coping mechanisms. They may help us feel less trapped, but ultimately they just treat symptoms. Our Heavenly Father is the only one who can redeem our view of self. He's the only one who can bring about any lasting change in our hearts. Let's turn to the only one who can help us, help us view ourselves rightly in light of the cross. Amen. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here that we will live in light of the cross, in light of Jesus, the word of God. That we will let it richly dwell among us. Bringing about the, the spiritual cellular respiration we need every day. And, and by the way, I pray for anybody studying with me who can't experience that because they've never believed in Jesus. The, we, know, we know what you tell us in 2 Corinthians, that Scripture is spiritually appraised. They can understand it intellectually to some degree, but they, they can't really experience the life-giving red blood cell of Scripture living in them. So I pray you change that. Lord, please, anyone who can hear me that has never trusted Jesus, draw them to you today, right now. Friend, listen, whatever you've based your life on, it may look solid. Oh, and don't tell me you don't have any faith. Everyone has faith. You're trusting in something. But I guarantee you, it, however it looks, it is not as solid as the solid rock of Jesus, who is the only one, fully God, fully man, died on the cross to pay for your sins because he loves you. And then he rose from the dead so that if you trust him, you follow him to everlasting life. And it changes everything. Spirit of God indwells you. The word can richly indwell you. But you have to believe. It's very simple. It's, not, it's nothing you earn. You couldn't earn it if you tried. It is something given to you by the grace of God and which you must receive. You believe on Jesus. Right now, if you've never done so, pray, talk to God. Just say, I trust Jesus. I believe on him to be my Savior. I put my faith in Jesus. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is still praying, raise your hand. Good for you. Amen. 
Father, thank you for these Christians, new and old. And we pray that we will. We will view ourselves rightly in light of the cross because your word changes everything in us. In Jesus' name, amen.